Welcome to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Located in El Dorado Hills, California, it is our mission to help others find and follow Jesus. We hope this message inspires, encourages, and uplifts you today. What's up, friends? Good to be with you. Man, I, uh, I don't know about you, but this uh, Letters from My Future Self, it has... You know, just so you know, I'm, I'm never the preacher that is preaching at you. Normally, I've been preaching the sermon to myself all week, and it's been raking me over the coals. And so whatever I stand up here and talk about on a Sunday is something that I've been walking through myself. And, uh, you know, just, just to be honest, I feel like I've been more transparent and vulnerable in this series than I've been in a while. Um, but where this came from for me was at the end of last year, I was thinking a lot, just reflecting on the past year and thinking, man, what, what do I wish I could go back and do over? Anybody had a moment like that where you thought, I wish I could go back and, you know, do something over again? Yeah, that's me too. And um, I, right off the bat, I was like, gosh, I, I wish not just this past year, but I, I'd go back many years like to a younger, younger version of myself. And I'd tell myself like I did on week one, hey, don't be afraid, Jonathan, to ask for help. There's gonna be times in your life where you need to ask for help. And so if you're new to the series or you're jumping in, uh, we're in week number four. You can go back on our YouTube channel and check it out. But week one was asked for help. Week two, Pastor Chad hit on anxiety and how we don't wanna waste our lives on worry. Week three, last week, we talked about forgiveness and as I was thinking through what, you know, what could we cover in this series? What, what do I wish that I could go back and touch on again or tell myself at a younger age? I thought, man, the list goes on forever, right? I would tell myself a whole bunch of things about relationships, sex, dating, friendships. I've been married for 14 years. I'd have some things to say to Jonathan 14 years ago when he was entering into marriage. I mean, any married couples in the room wish you could do a few things over? Okay. Um, that's just life, is it not? Experience is one of our greatest teachers. And so as we jump into week four, we're gonna hit on something that is absolutely relevant to all of us, something that Jesus talked about a ton in the Bible and in the New Testament, something that, gosh, if we can bring this under the Lordship of Christ, it will change every other area of our lives and truly something that for me where, gosh, I wish I could write to a younger version of myself and say essentially this, Jonathan, God is your provider. Trust that God will provide. Trust that all of this is not only from God, he owns it all, but ultimately at the end of the day, he is your provider. Jonathan, trust God with your money. Now, I know some of you are like, dang it. I cannot believe I invited my friend to church today. They were like, I'm not coming because all the pastor does is talk about money. Friends, I promise you, come next week, you know, and if you're new to faith, new to Christ, new to our church, I, I still believe deeply in what I'm about to share with you because 
Gosh, money is one of the most difficult and touchy subjects of our entire lives. But my heart in this for you is for you to experience the freedom of God's will, the peace of God's will in this area, and to share some things that I think are biblical and helpful for all of us, okay? That's my heart behind it. So if I was writing a letter to younger Jonathan, it would go something like this. Dear Jonathan, one of the hardest lessons you will ever learn in life is that God is your provider. He is the source of everything you will ever have and everything you will ever need. He is not only the provider of your spiritual needs, but your material needs as well. As you grow older, it will feel easier to believe that God is your spiritual provider that he freely provides you with grace, forgiveness, mercy, and unconditional love. The older we get, the more we realize how much we need those things. But when it comes to trusting God as the provider of your material needs, it's going to be much harder. You will be tempted to take matters into your own hands. As a child growing up, you watched your parents fight about money and you and Lindsay will fight about money too once you get married and start a family. Deep down, you will feel the, prevent, the pressure to be the provider for your family, but you must come to understand that you're only a steward of everything you have. God will continue to trust you with more as you grow older, but Jonathan, you must never forget he is the source, he is the owner. Instead of following your money, Jonathan, please tell your money where to go based on a long-term vision and plan and eternal perspective for your life. Do not allow your money to simply follow your desires. And do not try to keep up with the lifestyle choices of your friends, neighbors, or family members. Can I get an amen, somebody? Jonathan, here's the best advice I have for you when it comes to handling your money. Number one, don't wait to start saving and investing for your future until you have enough margin. Start now, start today. You will thank me for this later. Compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. Number two, avoid all unnecessary debt. Credit cards are sneaky and they will pile up on you faster than you could imagine. Learn to live within your means. Learn to be content. Number three, don't try to keep up with the lifestyle decisions of your friends. I already said this. Neighbors or family members, run your own race. Make your own financial decisions based on your financial reality, not on the perceived financial reality of someone else. Number four, Jonathan, don't wait to be generous towards the Lord until you can afford it. Truth is, you cannot afford not to give. I know that sounds crazy, but greed is costly. Start practicing generosity now, and I promise you, God will provide for your every need, and your generosity will build your trust in him, deepen your relationship with him, and cause you to be a blessing in the lives of many others. Take the plunge, take the leap, and watch what happens. Friends, I think if we could all write a letter to a younger version of ourselves, we would have some version of financial advice to give to that younger version of ourselves. There's, there's all sorts of ways that I think 
we all could handle our money more faithfully and better. And I'll be honest, Jesus taught on the subject of money more than anything else. More than anything else, the Bible has over 800 verses on this topic. It talks about saving, giving, investing, good stewardship, how to handle the resources that God provides us with. I mean, I, found, I discovered this the past week. I looked it up in my Bible study software. Jesus talks about money in the Gospels more than heaven, hell, love, and forgiveness combined. Wow. I was like, that's unbelievable. Why? Because money, and I, I just, this is so true. It's true in my own life. It's true in my own heart. Money is the chief competitor for the throne of your heart. The reason Jesus talked about it so much is he knows that the chief competition he has when it comes to what are we going to look to as our functional savior? What are we gonna look to to give us peace, security, identity, happiness, joy, contentment in life? What are we gonna look to? The number one competitor to Christ, especially in America, is your money. And Jesus said, he, he knew this. He knows our hearts. He made us. He designed us. He created us. Jesus said something so profound, and you've heard it before probably. He said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friends, there is a connection between our heart and our bank accounts, between our heart and our investments, between our heart and our money. And Jesus is very interested in your heart because he knows your heart from your heart flows the rest of your life. He cares deeply about where the affections of your heart are. And, and we know this to be true. We, we see this in real life. Wherever we put our money, there is an emotional attachment to that thing, a greater emotional attachment. If you've never invested in a stock before and you begin to invest in a stock, a particular stock or a mutual fund, you probably, you know, maybe you spent some time researching it, but now you're checking it every day. Now you're emotionally connected to whether it goes up or down. Not that any of you would do this, but let's just take uh, sports betting as another option out there, right? How many times, right? And of course, none of us would do this, but uh, how many times have we put money on a game, either with friends or FanDuel or whatever, between two teams that we don't watch or care about at all, but now suddenly, because our money's involved, we are losing our brains, over a game between two teams that we don't care about. It's just how it works. Our heart follows our money. It follows our treasure. And friends, money is hard. It is one of the most difficult things to bring under control, to tell it where to go, our, our emotions, our identity, all these, well, that was a good catch. All these, just like spider sense right there, pow. All these things in our life are just connected to money. It's, it's our identity. It's keeping up with the Joneses. It's the vacations that we want to take, the cars we want to drive, the neighborhoods we want to live in. It's an emotional thing. And 
I read an article this past week that was published by the American Psychological Association. And they said 75% of humans, that's the majority of this room, are currently stressed or anxious about their current financial predicament, about a financial decision they need to make in the future, or about what might happen financially to them in the future. Anxiety is a primary cause of stress. Now, here's what was fascinating to me. This 75%, you know, I, I would have thought in my head, well, maybe they just interviewed people that, gosh, were just really on hard times or, you know, needed a job or whatever it was. No, the 75% of Americans who stress about money say that stress is regardless of income. It doesn't go away with the more that you make. The decisions get bigger. There's more at stake. There's more involved with the more that you make. I read another interesting percentage. Economist E.F. Clark, after surveying thousands of people, he came up with something he called the 25% rule. And here's, here's what it says, essentially. Most people believe that if they made about 25% more money, they would find financial peace. They would have financial peace. If they made 25% more, maybe 30, 35% more, then they wouldn't stress about money. Then they'd have the margin they needed to save, to give, to do the things they needed to do for their future. They just need 25% more. Now, I don't know about you, but the 25% rule has not worked for me. I am way for, more familiar with a rule that I like to call the fourth and long rule, okay? It's been a while since I used a football analogy, so buckle up. I know it's summertime, about to be summertime, but we're going there. Fourth and long. You know what fourth and long is in football. So when your back's against the wall, typically you're gonna punt it in that situation. But if, if it's near the end of the game and you have to get a first down, your back's against the wall, there's a big risk because you know if you don't make the first down, you gotta give up the ball to the other team. And fourth and long financially, we've all been there at some point or another in our lives, right? Fourth and long is that moment near the end of the month when suddenly your bank account drops below like your subjective comfort zone level. You know what I'm talking about? We all have that number in our minds and we're checking our app for our bank account and when it goes below that number, you're calling your wife or your husband like, don't spend anything. Don't buy anything. Don't go to the grocery store. We're eating whatever's in the pantry, right? There's that comfort zone level that we all have. Fourth and long is when you're not sure how you're going to make the car payment, how you're going to pay the bank, how you're going to cover the unexpected dental bill or doctor bill from your kid's accident on the playground. Fourth and long is when your car just broke down and your washing machine and your fridge in the same month. Come on, somebody. It's when your kid wants to sign up for another sport and you want them to play that sport, so you gotta figure it out. It's when you weren't planning to pay for another wedding and your wife ends up being pregnant and praise God, it's a girl. Fourth and long. Fourth and long feels like historic levels of inflation. It feels like mass layoffs and maybe you were one of them. It feels like global financial instability, market volatility, high interest rates, skyrocketing gas bills and, gro and grocery bills. Friends, all of us 
are experiencing forth and long financially at one level or another in our lives. And there's a side of us that truly believes, gosh, if I just made a little more, if I just made 25 or 35 or I landed that job 25% or 35% more or landed that job, then I'd have financial peace. But it doesn't work like that, does it? You see, we've been there. I remember when I first got married, Lindsay and I, I mean, I went back and checked our tax return that year. $18,000 is how much we made our first year of marriage. I was rolling. We were missionaries, you know, we're raising support, just living on faith, like seriously living on faith. And I just remember a few points thinking, man, I, I either got to get out there, I got to raise some more support or need to find a different job. Like, God, it feels like we are just, you know, minute to minute, month to month, week to week. And we all have this moment where we think, if I just got a raise or if I got that promotion or I landed a new job or I landed that massive account or I made that big sale or the online marketing strategy begins to pay off or you get an unexpected tax return, instead of realizing, wow, I've been living on at fourth and long for a long time, I just got a raise. I just, you know, have this margin in my life now. I should pay off my debt or pay down that credit card or start an emergency fund or start giving to the church or some cause. Um, maybe I should just start saving and making some wise financial decisions. But instead of making wise financial decisions, what do we do? We think, yeah, I got a first down. I can afford that payment. We've been, we've been looking at that toy for a long time. It's time to buy it, right? And before we even think about it, that 25% bump has just run out the door, never to be seen again. And it's fourth and long again. We're like, how do we get here? Friends, instead of using faith and wisdom to tell our money where to go, based on eternal purposes and a long-term game plan, we give into our impulses and short-term desires, we satisfy our immediate wants, and we allow comparison to motivate bad financial decisions. Jesus in Luke 16, he, he says something else about finances. He says, you know, the one who is faithful with very little, turns out they're also faithful with much. And the one who is unfaithful with little is unfaithful with much. Now, there's a lot that that means. There's a whole lot that you can take from that. But one of the things it means is this. Whatever mistakes you made financially when you were making $18,000 a year and you were first married, you're gonna to continue to make those mistakes when you make $180,000 a year or $360,000 a year or 3.6 million a year. If you're not generous then, you won't be generous later. If you're not faithful with little and honoring to God with little, you won't be with much. In fact, it'll get harder the more you make. That is just how it works. What I've learned, what I think all of us will learn at some point is that financial peace is not about the amount of money we make. It's about how we handle the money we have. It's 
about how we handle the money we have. And we have to break the cycle of fourth and long in our lives. We have to break the cycle of comparison and following the impulses and desires of our hearts. And one of the ways that we do that is a principle of first fruits all throughout the scripture. Even before the law, some people say, you know, pastor tithing, it's an Old Testament law type thing. And I'm like, actually, the first time we have mention of a tithe in the Bible where somebody gives the first 10% or the first fruits to God is before the law. It predates the law. And then when you get to the New Testament, the whole theme is sacrificial generosity. Sacrificial generosity to put your money on mission to reach people. But I think about this because one of the biblical models that I think we can see from scripture is that we give first, then we save, and then we live. Give, save, live. It's the first fruits go to God. You think, man, I, I can't afford that. You know, I, I get to the end of the month and I barely have anything left and I, I give what I have left, but there's never anything left. I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel. And yet what will happen, and I promise you this, the Lord says, test me in this. If you give God the top of the barrel, the first fruits, the first 10%, two things will happen. One, you will invite the blessing of God over your finances and over your anxiety. You will invite the peace of God and the provision of God into your situation. The second thing that will happen is, that will happen is this, and it's just, I don't even know how this works. It's like the barrel got deeper. It really is. I mean, there's this story in 1 Kings chapter 17. I hadn't thought about it in a long time, but I, I thought, man, this is so incredibly relevant. And it's when Elijah is instructed by God. Check this out. Elijah's on the run for his life. He's been instructed by God to head to Zarephath. And he goes, I want you to find a widow there. And there's a famine in the land. Nobody has any food left. And God is sending Elijah to a widow. I'm like, God, of all the people, don't send him to a widow. Like whatever she's got left, she needs it, right? And so Elijah shows up, he obeys God. And as he arrives at the gate of the village, this is 1 Kings 17.10, he saw a widow gathering sticks and he asked her, would you, would you please bring me a little water in a cup? As she was going to get it, I love this because it's kind of like, oh, I didn't really want to ask her for anything, but I'm going to ask her for food too. As she's going to get it, he calls out and bring me a little bite of bread too. <laughs> at that point, she's getting a little upset. She turns and replies, I swear by the Lord your God that I don't have a single piece of bread in the house. Anybody ever feel like that? I got nothing left. I have a handful of flour and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal, then my son and I will eat it and die. Hello. Elijah's like, Lord, I told you, don't send me to the widow. But Elijah said to her, oh, think about this. Do not be afraid. I know the thought for some of you. 
to step out and to trust God with the tithe, the first, the first 10%, with an increase in whatever you're currently giving in terms of generosity is scary. He says, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do what I have said. Make a little bread for me first, then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says. There will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. You're not gonna run out. Trust me. I know it feels like you can't afford to do this right now, but God's gonna provide. So she did as Elijah said, and she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. It's amazing. God is our provider, even when it doesn't make sense. And something happens when you choose to give first. It brings a level of clarity and attention and self-control to the rest of your finances. It invites the blessing of God into your financial situation, the peace of God into your financial situation. This is how God designed it. And then we are stewards with everything that God has given us. Yes, we should save. Proverbs says, a wise man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. Saving is important. And then being a good steward with all that God has entrusted us to live on is massively important. God cares. He goes on to say in Luke 16, and this is the, the end of that section, he goes, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Friends, money is a great servant, but a terrible master. And so often, when it's fourth and long in our lives, we are tempted to put our trust in money as our functional savior, in our ability to provide as our functional savior. We begin to look to money to do what only God should be doing for us. When the money's good, we're at peace. When the money is good, our identity is secure. When the money is good, the anxiety and the stress go down. When the money is good, we're okay. We have joy and happiness and enjoyment of life. And suddenly getting more of it becomes our primary pursuit, our dream, our purpose, or the obsession of our lives. This is why... The number one political issue, whether you're right or left, is the economy. And when it's going well, both sides take credit. When it's going bad, everyone blames the other side. Money is the chief competitor for our hearts. Who will we look to as our savior, as our Lord? One of the things I, I thought about a lot as I was thinking about, man, what has it taken for me? Because it's been a journey for Lindsay and I. What's it taken for us to trust God with the tithe, to trust God with the first 10%? And I've, also, I've often asked the Lord, Lord, why 10%? What is it about the first fruits? Why, why that number? Why that amount? And the best way I can think of it is this. Over spring break, this past spring break a few weeks ago, just before Easter, 
Lindsay and I took our kids to San Diego to visit some family, and we went to the San Diego Safari Park Zoo. And, uh, you know, it's fun. You're walking around the zoo. You're, you're seeing all these animals. And we had been to the zoo there a couple times before, and we had always looked forward to the tiger exhibit, but it seemed like every time we got to the tiger, it was either sleeping, like in the corner, you could barely see it, or it was just not in, you know, not in the whole, we couldn't find it. But this one particular time, just a few weeks ago, uh, it was awesome. This is what we saw. Okay, check this video out. Uh, we can take that down. We'll put it right here on the screen for you to see. <laughs> it's wild because, you know, I know that tiger's real. I know it's real, but it's on the other side of the glass. And so I enjoy it from a distance. You know, I, me and the kids, we're taking photos, we're posting on Instagram, whatever. It's fun to casually observe a tiger from a distance, but even though I knew it was on the other side of the glass, the moment that thing made eye contact with me, I'm like taking video and I'm like, is it looking at me? Like it's looking into my soul. I mean, look, it's looking into your soul right now. The moment it just looked at me like that, my heart started pounding. I was like, oh my gosh, that's a tiger. That is a tiger. You know, I knew it was real, but then another, thought struck me. I was like, man, what would I do if the glass just disappeared? I was like, you know, it was pretty easy for me to enjoy the tiger. I mean, I had one little heart pounding moment when it looked me in the eyes, but it was pretty easy for me to enjoy it, to look at it, then to move on with the rest of my day and not really think about it again. But if the glass was gone and, you know, here we are standing a few feet away from it, I promise you this, my entire body, my heart, mind, soul, strength would be fully engaged in that moment. I'd look for my kids and my wife. I would grab them quickly and run as fast as I could. All my focus, all my energy, it would just, it would go from this casual observation of something that was kind of cool to, whoa, this is real. That tiger is really real. I know it's real. I know it's a real tiger, but it's really real right now. And friends, I wanna be honest with you. The reason I think God set the tithe at 10%, and if you try this, if you step out and say, Lord, I'm gonna obey you in this, I'm gonna honor you and worship you with the first fruits of what you give to me, I promise you, it will change your faith from something you casually observe on the other side of the glass to like, whoa, this just got real. My entire heart, mind, body, soul is engaged in this decision now, and I am locked in, Lord. Are you really my provider? Ooh, are you really the one you said you'll provide? Will you really do it? I can't afford this right now. I got no flour left. I'm fourth and long, Lord, and it's not looking good, but I'm gonna trust you with the first fruits. Friends, what happens is this. Tithing takes our faith from something we casually observe on the other side of the glass to something that fully engages our heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
What is the first commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We live in a comfortable, provided for American society. And we are surrounded by something called a secular worldview. And I want us to look at this real quick. I'm coming down the home stretch. A secular worldview is simply this. On one side of the column is your life, your work, your money, your relationships, everything that constitutes your life. But a secular worldview, the the air that we breathe in our culture, the water we're swimming in, in our culture, it says to you, this life is all there is. Live it up. When you die, you go to nothingness. You came from nothingness. You are the consequence of a cosmic accident. There's no real meaning and purpose. So here's the deal. Work to get ahead for yourself in life. Give all your money to yourself so you can live the best life possible. Everything about your relationships, your work, your money, all of your life, none of that is connected to this idea of God. It's not sacred and it's not eternal. Because there is no God, nothing is sacred, and nothing is eternal. That's what a secular worldview says. And friends, this is how most of us treat our money. We are not thinking of our life, our work, our money, our relationships in relationship to God, in relationship to worship as something sacred or as something eternal. The biblical worldview says, look, you are a living sacrifice. Your living sacrifice means you're giving all of your life to God in worship. That includes your money, your relationships, your work, your time, your talent, your treasure. All of this is sacred. There is no divide. A secular worldview says there's a massive piece of glass between my life and everything spiritual. A biblical worldview says there is no glass. This is full on, it's real, it requires all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. God wants all of you, and he wants you to worship him with your whole life. He wants you to understand that even the smallest decisions you make are sacred. They're an expression of love to him, and they have eternal consequences. There's an eternal reality to everything that we do in our life. The Apostle Paul, he said it like this, He said, what value was there in fighting wild beasts in Ephesus if there will be no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection, let's feast and drink for tomorrow we die. Paul's like, why would I get arrested and thrown into the Colosseum to get devoured by wild tigers and lions for sport, for entertainment for the Romans, If there was no resurrection from the dead, if Jesus isn't alive, if the gospel isn't true, if God isn't the creator and owner and provider of all things, if there is no resurrection, if Christianity isn't true, if there is no eternity, if nothing is spiritual or sacred, live it up. Let's feast and drink for tomorrow we die. And it's over. This life is all you got. Why would you do something with your money that doesn't seem to help you right now? Friends, in our life, we give our first and our best to what matters to us most. We give our first and our best to what matters to us most. 
and your money might not be eternal. You've heard it said, you can't take it with you. You can't take your stuff with you. That's true. Your money might not be eternal, but what you do with it will last for eternity. What you do with the things that God has entrusted you with will last for eternity. It lasts forever. And I'll never forget a, a sermon that changed my life. One of my favorite preachers and I heard it when I was in college and he said, you know, for most of us, and there's no shame in this, I'm saving for retirement too, but for most of us, retirement is the goal. Let's make enough and save enough so that we can retire comfortably. That's the aim, that's the goal. So we don't have to work forever. We, we have enough at the end to where we're not a burden to our kids and we have something to leave behind and that's all good and well. But he read this article from Reader's Digest and it was, a, it was an article promoting a retirement community in Siesta Key, Florida. And it was a description about um, a husband and a wife, I don't know, Susie and Harry. We'll just call them Susie and Harry. And it said, Susie and Harry, they spend their days eating at nice restaurants, relaxing on the beach, being with their friends, none of which are evil and bad. D don't hear me saying that. But then it closed with, in collecting seashells along the shore. And I thought, man, that really is the American dream. And I thought, wow. What a quick way, ultimately, to waste your life. To live only for that. To think that, man, this life is all we got, so I gotta live for comfort at the end. I mean, imagine stand be, standing before the Lord at the end of your life and saying, look, Lord, my shell collection. Look at this sweet conch shell, Lord. Found that one like four months ago. Look at this starfish. Look at this, look at this shark tooth I found. And we spend our whole life hoarding and saving our money to get to this point and never, never living a life where we said, hey, my money is actually on mission so that when I arrive at heaven's gates, I'm not just showing God my shell collection, I'm actually greeted by people who look at me and say, thank you. I'm here because you supported the mission of your local church. I came to Christ and got baptized at Hills Church. My life was changed, my marriage was saved. My child went to a summer camp and came to Christ. Friends, the biblical worldview says this stuff is eternal. Part of the reason God says, I want you to give the first 10% is so that the mission of God can go forth in the world through the local church. And I said this at the first service, I've said it before, I'll, save it, I'll say it again. If you don't feel like you can give generously and support the work of this church, then please go find one where you can. Go find one where you can. It's that important for your heart, your financial future, and it has eternal impact. Jesus said, look, I'm building my church. Jesus's plan A is the local church. It's declaring the good news of the gospel and seeing lives changed. And friends, my challenge to you today, whether you feel like the widow in Zarephath who says, I have 
nothing left. I can't afford to do this. Or you're somebody who has incredible amounts of money piled up, but you've never supported the cause of Christ on earth. Wherever you're at in the spectrum, take a step today. Take a step, honor God, put your money on mission. Put your money on mission to reach people and use your money as worship, the first fruits, honoring God. You will never know him as provider, especially in America, until you give him what he's given to you and honor him first. And man, if I could write a letter to a younger version of myself, I would literally say, Jonathan, God is your provider and you can trust him. Let me tell you all the times he's come through in the craziest ways that you would have never expected. You will never be in lack. He will show up and he will provide, whether through friends or family or through open doors and opportunities. But for many of us, just like in the days of Elijah, there is a famine in the land because we have not honored God with the first. We are crippled by anxiety and worry over finances because we're not honoring God with the first. We're not putting our money on mission. We're not using it as worship. Take a step. I know it's scary. I know it's not easy, but pray about it. Think about it. What's the step God would have you take? We're going to close our time as we always do every week with communion. And communion, if you uh, are new, you didn't grab a communion cup, they're just inside the doors at the back of the auditorium. You're free to get up now and go grab one if you need to. Um, communion is just a symbol of the generosity of God. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. And it's an invitation to trust him as the provider, not just of your spiritual needs, like forgiveness and grace and mercy, which he freely gives, but to trust him with your whole life. So I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna take communion together. Lord, thank you so much for dying for us on the cross. Thank you, Lord, that your blood was shed and your body was broken for us. And Lord, I pray today we would learn how to trust you as our provider. Lord, our, our faith would not just be something that we casually and comfortably observe on the other side of the glass, but we would take a step towards you and realize, I just think about Chronicles of Narnia, Lord, where the kids ask, is Aslan safe? And the response is, no, he's not safe, but he is good. Lord, I pray we would know your goodness and your provision in our lives. Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take communion together now. Thank you for listening to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you haven't already, give us a rating so we know how this has impacted your journey with God. To learn more about us, visit our website at hills.church. We'll see you next time.